This episode is brought to you by Harris Resort SoCal. Nestled against a rolling hillside and just down the road from Palomar Mountain, guests at Harris Resort SoCal can expect gorgeous views, friendly staff, available night and day to encourage everyone to have a great time. When I was there recently, I had a chance to dine at California's first and the nation's largest house kitchen. And it's true, the beef wellington and sticky toffee dessert are great. The restaurant is inspired by the hit TV show and features a menu approved by the Michelin star celebrity chef, Gordon Ramsay himself. Hope to see you all at Harris Resort SoCal in 2024. I'm Liang Hang Ping Wing. I hold the Dorothy Borg Chair in the History of the United States and East Asia at Columbia University. I'm also the director of the Weatherhead East Asian Institute and co-founder of Vietnamese Studies at Columbia. Welcome to the Vietnamese. I'm your host, Kenneth Nguyen. Being part of a culture of nearly 100 million Vietnamese people in the world today comes with a lot of pain, proud history, and privilege. Join me as I highlight and explore the Vietnamese experience from all over. Thank you, Hung, for coming on today. It's an honor. It's great to be here, Ken. You know, uh, we were chatting about um, this being a very casual uh, conversation, but not with you. It's there's a lot. There's a lot I want to know. Uh, there's a lot of things that you've done with your life that it's just so hard to cover in a short few minutes. I know. I was expecting to come here and just you know sort of just chat with you, uh, shoot the breeze. But now I I think this is going to be a pretty intense interview. But I'm I'm excited about it. First thing in the morning. <laughs> yes. Thank you. Thank you so much. So what inspired you like early on to study? History. What was your journey on arriving at this modern Vietnamese history place? Yeah, you know, that's not what my parents had in mind for me. I'm the youngest of nine. Um, and they, you know, we, we, we represent all the different professions in my family and they had wanted me to be a dentist. We needed a dentist, you know, so uh, that was what they had wanted. Um, but I grew up just, you know, just with this question um, as the, you know, born in Vietnam came at the end of, of the war and just had questions about how did I end up in the United States of America? How did my family end up here? What are they always talking about when they talk about being separated from family members in Vietnam? What was this war all about? And, you know, the questions they always talked about around the dinner table, the elders did, because I, I grew up with my parents, my maternal aunt and grandmother, a few uncles and some cousins was a very cramped house. Um, but the dinner table conversations were always about how did uh, South Vietnam, how did the Republic of Vietnam lose that war to uh, to the Vietnamese communists in the north um, and their allies in the south? Uh, very little bit was about actually the United States. It was just um, questions about you know this aspect of the Vietnamese Civil War. So I think I took that with me. Um, and then when I got to college at the University of Pennsylvania, and I think this is sort of similar for everyone in my generation, you kind of discover your roots if you didn't grow up in a, in a community with a lot of Vietnamese. And so it was really there that I started uh, more of an academic investigation inquiry into this question of how did uh, my family and I end up in the United States of America um, in the 1970s. So I think that really drove my interests um, and was a great place to really, you know, do history. Um, University of Pennsylvania, uh, I had I had phenomenal faculty, um, you know, teachers who really you know, encouraged me um, to find out more about modern Vietnamese history. As I think about the family dinner table, there's nine of you, right? So... 
a lot of the older uh, siblings that you have were very aware of what went on uh, as the war, war was going on. They're probably in their 60s now. And I can imagine how much that affected you sitting at the dinner table, listening to these older siblings speaking probably Vietnamese because they come from Vietnam as teenagers or, or you know, what? how did that influence the journey for you? You know, it's, it's, it's interesting. I mean, even there are nine of us and we are about two years apart. So you're giving away our ages right now, Ken, and they won't like that you have brought up that they are in their 60s because I think we all perpetually think we're in our 20s or something like that. But uh, they, they did. I mean, my eldest brother was 16 when he came. So he has very vivid memories of the war of escaping. Um, and I think he and the, you know, sort of I'll just call them like the, the older siblings really didn't want to uh, focus on that, that, that very traumatic past. Um, and then added with that, you know, the sort of necessity to, um, to, you know, cause he went right into high school, senior year of high school, and then went on to college that we had to make ends meet. And so the news was, you know, you forget about this painful past, you major in something that can make money and help support the family. So it really, you know, it, it fell on the younger siblings, um, this sort of liberty and um, freedom to explore something like history and to major in a liberal arts, um, you know, sort of a discipline um, to really enjoy a liberal arts undergraduate education. And so I could, I had the, the, the luxury, the freedom of being um, a history major in ways that my older siblings didn't. They, they uh, ended up doing more um, sort of what a quote unquote practical degrees in engineering. And again, it was because they needed to go out and make money um, to support the family. So in many ways, they were more like my parents in yeah. the sense that um, in here of that stereotype of, of Asian parents who want to forget about the past, there's nothing that, that we could learn from it. What's the point? Um, in addition to that, it was also a painful one in which they were separated from, from family, from loved ones uh, who remained, who were stuck back in Vietnam. So initially it was one of these things by the time I, um, you know, entered college and then decided I was going to pursue a PhD um, in, uh, you know, again, this painful episode of our past, they were like, we don't think this is a good idea. You know, again, dentist, you can make good money. What are you going to do with a history PhD? Um, and I told them I love, you know, I, I love research. I love writing. I love teaching. So, um, you know, for, for my parents that at the same time, while they wanted me to do something that could earn money, um, that was more sort of stable, uh, they also have the veneration of, of, of it, you know, the intellectuals and of the detox. So, you know, we come from a society that um, that celebrates, uh, you know, a world of, of ideas and of, of the academy of academia. So, you know, they, they was sort of a tug of war for them because they're, they were like, look, we have to we're, we're refugees in this country. You should focus on a career choice that is viable, um, that can support, you know, yourself and your family. Um, by the time I'm in my 20s, they were all doing OK. Um, and then, you know, also, uh, you know, the other side of them, which would, you know, wanted to have their children um, go into academia, they themselves only went as far as high school in Vietnam. So they were not part of this wow. sort of uh, socioeconomic elite. Um, and so they were, you know, my, my mom was a factory hand at Pasteur. My father joined uh, the military. 
who was in the Air Force. So, you know, they, they but of course they grew up, they're a product of, of Vietnamese uh, society and culture and education at that point. And there still was a veneration for teachers. So I think, um, you know, they, they were worried about me. And then when I, of course, explained what kind of history I was going to do, I wanted to tackle that war. They said, okay, mm -hmm. uh, another bad idea, because that <laughs> means you'll have to go to Vietnam to do research. And depending on what you write, this could be very controversial. Um, the Vietnamese community in the United States is very politicized. They were worried uh, that I would get beaten up. Uh, because there had been instances in the past of Vietnamese scholars writing in a certain fashion um, and a certain, I, I think, fringe um, element of that of that community, uh, depending on on the time period, I think was much worse in the 19 late 70s, early 80s. By the time I'm doing this, it's the 90s. I think we, while there were instances of violence, I told them I, I doubt that you know people were so passionate about history uh, that they would go after me uh, in the. At the end of the day, I think, you know, I I, I have gotten, you know, sort of uh, pushback and criticism from the Vietnamese community. But, you know, I, I respect, you know, everyone with their differing uh, opinions and perspectives. And for me, it's about really keeping that line of, of um, dialogue and conversation open. We should be able to debate but we should also respect each other's positions. Um, and I think that it's really that diversity, which, which is great. Um, and I think, you know, where my parents were coming out of in the, in the late seventies, early eighties, that wasn't the case. They, it was, you know, um, the stakes were much higher and there was this sort of closing off of any kind of conversation about this, because I think just, it was so recent um, and the hardships that they endured, um, you know, it, it took time to heal. Yeah. What, is considered modern history. What time period is modern? Yeah, chew you little historian. This is great. That is a question. I mean, posed to any any historian who wants to study, um, you know, any people of the past. And I think in terms of our uh, of our field, um, said you know, Vietnamese history, most dated with the arrival of the French, I would put it earlier. Uh, and that's a question of sort of when did modernity arrive in Vietnam? Um, and I think one of the things you can point to um, is sort of the early 1800s before the arrival of the French in full force by, by mid-century, mid-19th century, that the early, uh, you know, wing emperors uh, were able to deal with um, a body politic. Right. So they were able to deal with the landmass that went from that that became the country as we know it today, Vietnam, uh, really didn't come into being until 1802. And that, of course, is that S-shaped country uh, that is, you know, it's been compared to, um, you know, like the, the 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 rice buckets, right, carried by a long pole um, that starts in the Red River Delta up north, running all the way south to the Mekong Delta. Um, that didn't exist until 1802. And then if you look at the sort of entirety of, of modern Vietnamese history, I'm not saying I dated at 1802, uh, but, you know, it it, it only existed um, as a unified country uh, until the French came uh, and then no, they broke it this, apart. This idea of uh, Bidoho, Mok Ngang Nam, is not true then. I mean, this idea of being uh, held in captivity by the bigger powers for a thousand years or b being kind of like pushed or pressured for a thousand, that's not true? 
No, it is true. I mean, this is, a, you're, again, a great historian or student of history. Um, that is a, a dominant narrative um, that has been put forward particularly um, well by the current communist government, that that the Vietnamese had always uh, resisted foreign aggression from antiquity to the present, and that the Vietnamese Communist Party inherited that sort of um, uh, sort of compulsion to always expel, uh, you know, foreign aggressors. And we were colonized by uh, by our neighbor to the north for a thousand years. But there's also a history of uh, Vietnam. And again, these are more recent uh, scholars who argue that while that was the case, that there had been you know, instances where where the Vietnamese had expelled foreign aggressors. There are also instances of working very closely mm-hmm. with outside parties and adopting, say, if it's something like uh, aspects of Chinese uh, civilization that the Vietnamese were 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 you know even after um, overthrowing or, or expelling the the Chinese conquerors adopted their ways. So so how do you sort of reconcile right. that? Um, that it's not always the sort of uh, relationship between Viet- Vietnamese and the outside world, that it was sort of closing up borders in the way that it was uh, with, say, you know, to a, to a better extent, the Japanese uh, or the Koreans um, in this period uh, of history, that they did try to close off their civilizations, their kingdoms, much more to the outside world uh, than compared to the Vietnamese. I think the Vietnamese never had an option to do that, given our geography. We right. were, we were um, you know, sort of node in terms of, of world trade. Uh, you know, the the port cities like, uh, you know, anywhere from like um, uh, Hoi An, uh, Quy uh, what became, you know, Saigon, were always trade entrepôts in which Vietnamese were interacting with Chams, Khmers, Thais, uh, Burmese, uh, Europeans, Chinese. And so, you know, our trade networks were extended all the way uh, to the Middle East and Africa. So we're not like, you know, other sort of Asian civilizations that had that luxury to close off. Um, and even in those societies, I think there was a lot more trickling in. Uh, but the, but Vietnam was never like that. So we do sort of inherit certain tropes. Um, and I think that one about Vietnamese always resist foreign aggression has to be, you know, kind of it, it's very complicated. Um, I forgot my train of thought. Where, where was this question going about oh, well, modernity? When, modernity, did, when yeah. did modernity arrive? So, you know, I think I take... Um, I take the early wing emperors and what they were able to establish in this sort of unified country, uh, because prior to that, there was, you know, I think the history of Vietnam is that there were, there were constantly, there were many Vietnams existing in one space that we know it today as that S-shaped country. Uh, but its current borders only were achieved uh, by the 1900s, and then even then broken up in various episodes of history, whether it be the French colonial era, Uh, in the post-1945 era, uh, post-54 era, and then finally until it was reunified in 1976. So in that way, it's a younger country than the United States of America. If we take into account that 1802, we achieved the borders that exist today, but then got broken up in many, in many different distinct episodes in history. So, so with that, um, the question I think it's it lies somewhere in in the wing uh, emperors and maybe even Min Mang because he was able to construct a government that was able to oversee the governance of this entire country. 
Your answer just made me think of five other questions, but I'm not going to go into it because it's going to drag out. <laughs> I think people are, will probably fall asleep at this point saying, no, I didn't no. expect the history believe lesson. It, believe it or not. No, this opens up. I mean, there's things that we don't know. There's a lot of things that we don't know. But we don't get to sit in a class with you. So all of these like little snippets, hopefully it opens up questions for other people to go and research you know this idea of 1802 this s country the port all of these things i want to get more but i just i have so many questions for you so we'll start with this idea of you being um a point i'm not sure if you were voted appointed as director of the weatherhead east asian institute at columbia what is the significance of this new role for you Oh, it is such a great honor. It was a, a process in which I was nominated and then elected by the the, the members associated with the uh, Weatherhead East Asian Institute. Um, the institute itself is almost 75 years old. Wow. So in 2024, we will turn 75. So we were created, um, we were established uh, during the Cold War, 1949 in particular. And that, of course, that year is very important because that was the founding of the People's Republic of China. So Weatherhead at Columbia really tried to become, um, you know, a regional institute that would focus on Asia and particularly the challenges confronting the United States vis-a-vis -vis Asia. Um, and so particularly with the founding of the People's Republic of China, of Communist China, there was a need for greater expertise. So the Institute um, was able to attract faculty, to provide funding, to really be the sort of hub uh, for all things Asia, to provide information, um, to provide uh, basically um, insight into Asia you know, uh, within the social sciences uh, as well as the humanities. So that was... Um, that was the sort of mandate with uh, with the East Asian Institute that uh, eventually became the Weatherhead East Asian Institute. And I'm the first Vietnamese uh, Vietnamese American woman who is director. They've tended to be the directors tend to initially, of course, tended to be Caucasian males. And then more recently, we had um, scholars who focus on um, China and Japan be directors. This is the first time that someone who actually does Vietnamese studies overseas is the director of probably the most powerful regional institute that is very strong for China, Japan, Korea, and hopefully under my directorship continues to grow uh, into Southeast Asia and particularly Vietnam. And it's an important time. I mean, I think you pointed out that there's so many aspects of Vietnamese history or Vietnamese studies that requires the next generation um, to focus on in terms of, of their, their PhDs or undergraduate level. I mean, we, we really need more, more, um, uh, more research done, more scholarship done on Vietnamese studies, particularly as Vietnam continues to rise in importance, uh, and particularly as Vietnamese, say, in America, um, continue to be an important, um, you know, sort of community within the United States, uh, that, you know, we, we were, we lagged behind these other country groups. Um, and so there's always this thing that it's always dominated, any Asia institute's always dom dominated by China, Japan, and then now Korea. So it's always CJK, and I hope one day that V gets in there too, um, because you know it's it's really our time, 
and it, it's only come much more recently. So part of the Weatherhead East Asian Institute, what we're doing here is I am trying to build a center for Vietnamese studies. And with the center, it's not just, you know, kind of relying upon the faculty here. There's myself, there's uh, John Fan, who teaches in East Asian languages and cultures. And then we have two language instructors. Um, but with that brick and mortar, with the center, um, what we are able to build and what we've built up to this point can stay into perpetuity. Um, and it's it's important because I think it's, you know, it's a moment in which I feel like Vietnamese Americans really need to, um, you know, to, or, or we deserve a seat at the, at the table, at the academic table. And for me, it's that academic table in the Ivy Leagues. I really think opens, you know, so many new opportunities for subsequent generations of Vietnamese uh, and Vietnamese Americans that, you know, it's it's one of the hardest nuts to crack, or it's one of the hardest spaces to get into, and that is the sort of Ivy Leagues, because again, they're so they're such a, um, you know, a sort of very important. They're very important institutions in the United States, but they're highly elite. So, you know, I think what what I've kind of um, decided to undertake, while I love my research, while I love my teaching. Um, it really is this other cap that I have to wear, which is academic leadership and administration uh, to do something that that, you know, sort of lives on after me. And that is the center that I'm I'm trying to build. Now, this center brick and mortar, where is it being built and who funds this? Oh, this is so I didn't think, you know, again, I, I thought I took a vow of poverty. <laughs> I did take a vow of poverty uh, when I when I decided to not become a dentist uh, and to become a college professor. Uh, but everything requires money. So in order to build something like a center, there's a lot of, you know, fundraising one has to do a lot of donor relations. Um, so donors that we have to cultivate, there's a lot of applying for foundation grants. Um, so our, our funding can come from various sources. Um, so, you know, it, it, it takes a lot. Um, and particularly, you know, I live in New York. We live in New York City. Columbia real estate is a premium. I mean, I, so it, it takes even more to build something, a brick and mortar uh, here at Columbia than compared to to um, our you know, counterparts in, in other parts of, of the country. But, you know, one of the things, again, I always say, what what legacy are we leaving? First, you know, I'm very devoted to my children. I have two daughters. They are they are me. They are my legacy. They're going to be they're their own people. Um, the other thing, books. I love writing books that will last a pot, like, you know, that reaches an audience. My students um, here at Columbia and before that University of Kentucky, my legacy. The third part of this is the center, because again, that lives on after I stop writing, after I stop teaching, after I stop talking. Uh, but it, it it does take a lot. Um, and this is, you know, for me, a very steep learning curve uh, as I take on this directorship um, and as, you know, also being co-founder of the Demi Studies. It's a lot about academic politics. And if you remember what has been attributed to Henry Kissinger, but really I think starts with Woodrow Wilson, is that um, the the power struggles in academia are worse than any other in any other industry. Why? Because the resources are so small. I mean, we're fighting over scraps. Uh, but as a result, you really kind of have to develop another skill that I think skill set that that academics are not good at. We're very good at kind of, or at least from what I come from, hiding out in the archives and libraries, working alone. Uh, but in what I'm doing now, it's a lot more of, um, I guess you could say, people skills. Yeah. Your, your Vietnamese studies at Columbia, what's brewing um, for the 2025 uh, upcoming 50th year anniversary here? 
Yeah, that is, um, I mean, while we will do many events and programming after 2025, but we are we are already preparing now for that big anniversary. And of course, that anniversary that, and of course, everyone who, who subscribes to your podcast knows it very well, which is the fall of Saigon. Um, you know, I think this is our opportunity. While I always think anniversaries are hokey, right? Like, of course, we can, we can focus on something when it's not a round number anniversary. But, you know, the difference is the, 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 the country, the world, there's a there's a global audience when it's around an anniversary. So we hope to, um, really commemorate and understand and reflect back upon the past 50 years. I can't believe it's it's been a half century. Uh, but one of the events that we did most recently, which I'm calling the rise from the fall. So it's really sort of this, this rise. And here I'm, I'm invoking um, the phoenix, right? The phoenix in terms of, of the Western mold, of, you know, a bird that rises from the fiery ashes um, to, to become great. I'm marrying that, of course, with the um, with the mythical cre the, the the creation myth about you know Vietnamese being the the um, the offspring of a of a magical union between a phoenix and a dragon, right? That um, you know that that half follow um, you know the the dragon to the north, the other half follows uh, the phoenix to the south. But then I I put a modern spin on it. The half that goes south eventually goes to another country, namely the United States. And here we were born. Now we're taking the the Western understanding of the phoenix um, because, I, you know, we've seen that we've seen Vietnamese come a very long way in the United States of America after that war. So what I would like to do is to really, um, you know, both, you know, kind of uh, celebrate, but then also understand the hardships and the hardships that we endured and the hardships and challenges we still face. Um, so it's not this sort of Whiggish history where it was like things were bad and now they're great and, and they will continue to be great. No, there, there are always bumps on the road and, you know, there's ups and downs. And we, we really, though, need to kind of investigate more of that very important history to understand where we are today and then hopefully project where we will continue to go in the future. You're bridging both the homeland and the diaspora. You have a big involvement with Fulbright University in Vietnam, you're on the board. And I am curious because I've interviewed several members uh, from Fulbright and I love the mission. And this idea of academic freedom, you know, sometimes people in Vietnam, it's hard for them to discuss this idea of academic freedom, but I know that the mission of Fulbright is really focused on academic freedom, but how much academic freedom are we really talking about here? And what does that even really mean? That's a very good question. Fulbright University, Vietnam, I, I don't think I've ever encountered um, an institution that has inspired um, anyone who is who, who comes across it, who wants to learn more about it, who actually meets the students, the the professors, the administrators on the ground running this amazing institution. Uh, Fulbright University of Vietnam was a, a product of really was a, is a product of U.S. Vietnam reconciliation. It is the good side of the relation, the state to state relationship between these two countries that used to be bitter enemies and shared a tragic, violent past um, to now looking towards the future and the and the relationship um, and the partnership that should provide the basis for peace and stability uh, in the future. So what, what was this, you know, again, this major clash, probably the most devastating war of the 20th century um, to now 
you know, again, U.S.-Vietnam being a relationship, being a partnership that should hopefully uh, maintain the peace in the region. I, I find that so interesting when I teach yeah. my students about, you know, U.S.-Vietnam in the 20th century and what U.S.-Vietnam can be in the 21st century. Uh, Fulbright is the pro product of that. Uh, FUV is um, an exceptional university, and I, I, I want it to, to, to succeed. Um, and so for that reason, I, I I was lucky enough to to join the board of trustees, um, and I think you know that that's really our mission. Um, it is again to to strengthen that relationship between the United States and Vietnam, um, and then for me as an academic, um, as an educator, one of the things that I understand um, about you know sort of Vietnam today, and you touch upon this about academic freedom, uh, while there are you know again stellar institutions outside of FUV, um, we have you know MOUs, we have educational agreements with many universities and institutions. Columbia does uh, with inst institutions of higher edu education in Vietnam. FUV stands out, and the reason FUV stands out is I think you know it it really combines the best of of U.S. style higher ed uh, with the best of, uh, you know, Vietnamese higher ed. And I think in that partnership, um, they'll overtake us all, especially for something like Vietnamese mm -hmm. studies. I mean, I want to see in my lifetime that the uh, that the number one institute institution to learn about about Vietnam and Vietnamese uh, is Fulbright University of Vietnam. At the same time, you know, again, as someone who has studied a little bit about, you know, sort of the U.S. Um, U.S. institutions of higher education overseas and other countries, I mean, the United States has been building colleges and universities um, in other regions, um, you know, since the uh, 19th century. There was a definitely a, a big spurt again in the in the 1940s and then in the post 45 era. One of the great things is even if it begins as an American concept or creation, it quickly returns to the host country and to the host people. Um, and I think what is um, pivotal, though, is that in the early years and the decades when it's still a partnership between the United States and the host country, um, that, again, you get that best of both worlds and that that continues. It doesn't matter you know, who actually owns the institution um, after a certain period of time, but that foundation um, is already laid. So FUV does benefit from having more academic freedom and liberties than their, their counterparts uh, in Vietnam. And I think that, you know, one of the things that that Vietnam is trying to trying to do today is to educate the next future, you know, their 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 future population, their their young people, the the younger generation, to create leaders. Um, and when I was in Vietnam um, most recently, and I was giving a talk about the importance of a, of a you know of a private non for profit liberal arts based undergraduate institution uh, with a core curriculum. Um, I tried to, you know, kind of speak to to uh, the Vietnamese um, that this is this is probably the most important thing that they could do for the country. Um, and what I mean by that was I was reflecting back upon when the core curriculum uh, was was established at Columbia. Um, and in particular, um, there was a course in 1919 that looked at contemporary civilizations. And what it was trying to do was, you know, 1919 was when the United States and, of course, the, the countries around the world just emerged out of World War One. And they were tired of war. They were tired of this devastating world war. And they wanted to prevent war from ever breaking out again. So what did they do? They created a curriculum 
to educate future leaders in, in how to maintain the peace. So I said, of course, it's you know, this is Vietnam's time. Vietnam is very similar to the United States in 1919, where Vietnam is today in the 2020s. In order to become a regional and global power, you need to educate your 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 young generation. You need to educate them uh, in a way that makes them constantly, you know, curious, uh, constantly wanting to learn about where they are um, as human beings and what they can give back. Uh, not only to their country, but I think to the global community. So you're really creating and teaching global citizens. And that's what, you know, again, a liberal arts-based education does. It provides the younger generation with those tools to be global citizens. So this is the time for Vietnam, given where it is today, to really invest in higher education. But the simplistic view of some implied restriction or restrictive sort of viewpoint from the current government is, you know, it's like the elephant in the room. We don't really talk about it because we know that along with more education, along with more academic freedom comes ideas and ideas brings change that sometimes a, 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 an incumbent government doesn't want to face. And so how do we mitigate sort of like this, the two different ways of, of looking at, you know, uh, just a completely wide open democratic place versus a government that's still sort of coming up in its own Confucian. Yeah, that's what I, how I like to look at it. It's like this Confucian way of uh, applied pressure from the top down. It's a great question. I think this is this is what, um, you know, students of, of um, you know, of, of, well, actually, just students of history constantly try to tackle, especially if they are looking at societies and governments. Uh, and the rise and fall of, of empires looks precisely at this question. Uh, you know, and I, I think we are living in interesting times because what we see is that, you know, the United States, let's take, for example, the the, um, the counterpoint to your question about, you know, what should Vietnam allow because too much freedom, too much academic liberty could potentially make their citizens question. And questions could lead to you know, maybe a criticism to outright attacks, to rebellion, to revolution. Okay. What we have in democracies where, you know, one can argue you have a lot of academic liberty and freedom, we are also at a very uh, stagnant point in our country's history, particularly with regard to, um, you know, just, just, I would just say, you know, sort of many, many people, commentators have said we're, we're on the brink of, of a civil war ourselves. Right. And that there seems to be the stymieing of academic liberties in the United States. So no one political system has it right. Um, yeah. And this is something why, you know, for, for what I do, I, I do. I, uh, I study uh, Vietnamese communism and the political system. And, you know, I just I'm, I'm thankful I'm not a leader of a country <laughs> because it is precisely that. But, I, you know, I think if if and I and I think they should listen to your podcast, Ken, if there is any Vietnamese leader listening right now, it is a fine balance. But if you if 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 Viet, if the Vietnamese government doesn't allow uh, you know, their younger generation, this academic freedom, this, you know, really encourage them um, in this, you know, sort of pursuit to understand, uh, again, where they are, where they come from, uh, what they can do. Um, then I think what they're if, if, if the Vietnamese government doesn't allow this, then the country won't grow. Then, you know, all of Vietnam's desire to be uh, by 20 50, one of the top 20 economies, that won't happen. 
for everything the Vietnamese leaders say, they want Vietnam to continue to be an important regional player and maybe one day be a, you know, a, a global player on the international scene. That won't happen if you stymie your population and you don't give them the tools uh, to compete with other countries around the world. So, you know, it, it, it is difficult. And it's something that, again, we historians have studied as we as we, you know, kind of look at the rise and fall um, of civilizations. I mean, this this gets to the heart of it. Yeah, it's not a simple answer. And I don't ever think that going to any extremes of saying, oh, it's the government or I think there's a lot of baked in sort of like, again, Confucian sort of hierarchical, patriarchal ways of governing that lends itself to the current government. And it's not just like this political ideology, but there's also the cultural ideology of top down and, you know, the enforcement styles of being Vietnamese. I mean, that, let's just it's be so i think that there's um a lot to sort of uh unpack in the next decade and it's interesting to 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 see it now your work has been um mentioned in some uh, write-ups uh, your first book hanoi's war an international history of the war for peace in vietnam it's it's some people have said it's one near universal acclaim when it when it came out this is an impossible feat like in my mind how do you get it right for like this all sides and you know you have people from all different political spectrums sort of agreeing on the work that you do his with the history how do you kind of get it right i mean you got to put your foot down somewhere with uh a thesis that you put out but then it conflicts sometimes with all these different viewpoints so how did how do you as an author get to the point where a, a lot of people are like okay we think she got it right um, I would say that actually it did not come out <laughs> to near universal acclaim. Uh, I think it, it's actually very, it's a, it's a contentious history. Um, and I guess I would answer that question about getting it right. I think, you know, there is no such thing as, mm. as capital T truth uh, in terms of, of historical inquiry. I mean, you only have interpretations. So, you know, Hanoi's War was my interpretation of the past, um, given everything that I had seen up to that point, what I've read, what I digested, but it's my interpretation. I never, you know, I think I think any professional historian wouldn't claim that they are that they're one hundred percent correct or, you know, writing the truth, capital T, because there isn't one. There's only interpretations. It's only my perspective. Um, so I took that as my basis. I think that's, um, you know, anyone who does a PhD in history has taught that right at the outset, like don't yep. even try to claim this. Um, so, you know, for us, it's really about studying cause and effect, about change over time. Um, and what I, you know, this brings back to that first question you asked me, like, why did I, why did I focus on, on modern Vietnamese history? Um, it again draws from my own personal experience, wanting to understand what the elders were talking about around the dinner table. Why did the Republic of Vietnam, why did South Vietnam lose that war to the North? And then that made me try to tackle what what do they mean by the North? Who are the North Vietnamese? What is Vietnamese communism? So um, I embarked upon that in my, in my graduate career at Yale. I actually started out as a U.S. diplomatic historian. So I studied with U.S. Uh, diplomatic and military historians at Yale. And um, even before that, in my undergraduate, I thought I was going to work on the American Civil War. So I guess there was something that always drew me to questions of war and peace. Um, 
But I decided with my skill set and my advisor, um, you know, encouraged me to do this is to try to get into the Vietnamese archives because there's so many questions that still abound about that war. Uh, I mean, when I was starting out, it was kind of, you know, the, the state of the field, the literature was just like, well, you know, who was even in charge in the North? It was kind of like if the, the books written about World War II, we knew nothing about the Third Reich. We had no idea if Hitler was actually in charge. Um, or, you know, questions of, of strategy. How did they how did they devise their battle plans? Imagine if you wrote about World War One without any understanding yeah. <laughs> of, of trench warfare or how, but that was the state of, of Vietnam War history at that time. So there were so many big questions out there um, that that young scholars could tackle. And what I, you know, um, what I wanted to bring to the table was someone who would have the linguistic uh, ability to access Vietnamese documents um, with this grounding in the historiography. Um, and so that was sort of where I came out in this sort of cohort of, of uh, graduate students who are interested in the global Cold War and wanted to access these very difficult to access archives around around the globe, particularly former communist or presently communist countries. So, um, you know, it was, it was happening at the time. This is, I started doing research in the 1990s. This just was, you know, around the time that, that the Vietnamese government was welcoming um, back Vietnamese, uh, Vietnamese in the diasporic community to return to Vietnam to help rebuild the country. Um, and I just, I loved it. I loved my time doing academic research um, in the archives. But, you know, it's, it was complicated because for Vietnam, this was really, that war um, is so tied to the legitimacy and the sovereignty of the Vietnamese communist government. So it was very hard to kind of, as you said, like unpack and try to do um, research regarding, you know, this very, very um, important period in, in Vietnamese history and the government's role and the party's role. Uh, in that war effort. So um, it was a lot to tackle, uh, but again, I enjoyed the whole research process. Um, and uh, and yeah, and I, I think I was fortunate to be able to see materials that had never been declassified. So in brief, the three archives that would have revealed the most with regard to Hanoi's war are the party, military, and farm ministry archives. They still remain to this day, the three closed archives. So. Uh, they don't even allow foreign scholars, I'm sorry, let me say this. They don't even allow Vietnamese national scholars in those archives. Those archives are just closed, period. Um, so it's, it's it's difficult then. It was difficult to write the kind of book are that I wanted to now? write about. Are they, open now? Are the archives open yeah. now? Wow. No, they still are. Uh, they're still closed. Um, I was able to gain entry into the foreign ministry archives and have received and looked at um, uh, at classified documents that are still closed and and called Mima. You know, they're still mm -hmm. secret. Um, so, you know, it, but again, you know, since there were so many big questions out there, like who was even in charge? Was it, was it Ho Chi Minh? Because we constantly see, constantly mm -hmm. see pictures of him. Was it General Vong Wing's app? Like, you know, I, I that's what I initially I thought um, were, you know, was uh, the, the sort of Communist Party leadership when I when I began my research and then quickly found out that no, you know, there were two other characters, uh, in particular one, Lei Yun, um, and, you know, later Ta, who really ran the show, but there wasn't as much research done about those two men. You know, we, uh, as growing up um, 
in the U.S. as kids, we just knew that it was just that side and our side, right? It's just we think of these things as two sort of like black and white entities. But uh, as I've read more about the work that you do, uh, there are so many different factions in the North Communist Party. And then there were so many different factions in the South government. Do you think, I mean, this is a very simplistic question, but uh, we can start from this point is, do you think that the North were actually more unified and therefore won the war and pushed through? Or do you think that uh, there were much, much bigger uh, components to this and it's not really just uh, how unified the North was or how unified or not unified the South was? I mean, what, what, what were the things that led to uh, the cultural side of the North winning, quote unquote? Yeah. Those are great questions. I mean, it's it is um, a lot to unpack and to kind of um, tease out. And, you know, I, I would encourage people to read Hanoi's War <laughs> to do so. But I think I think you're right. I mean, one of the things that I wrestled with, again, there are these these big, you know, there are these shibboleths, you know, or, or these touchstones in Vietnam War history that, OK, so the communist side, you know, that it won the hearts and minds of the of the Vietnamese people in the ways that the United States and South Vietnam lost in that struggle for hearts and minds. But I would actually say that it wasn't about hearts and minds and it wasn't about about um, really winning over the South Vietnamese people. It was about control. Um, you know, that was a major factor, I think, in in terms of uh, North Vietnam's victory over South Vietnam, that the communist government had a good 10 years to build uh, a government and a system. Because, I mean, if you just look again at recent history, uh, the right after the end of, of World War II, um, there is this, you know, the founding of the Democratic Republic of Vietnam based in Hanoi. Um, then you had... Uh, what unfolded was the French Indochina War from 1946 to 1954. So 54, finally, the countries divided at the 17th parallel at the Geneva Conference. That gave the Republic of Vietnam a starting point of 1954-1955. 45 was when the DRV was founded. So even though it was, you know, at a, in a state of war with the, the French, and so was the South, that still is, you know, sort of critical time. And what I what I've argued and what others have argued is that state building amid war creates a very strong state. Yeah. Um, and the Republic of Vietnam, again, starting out 10 years later, different host of issues. I think we also have to take into account the international climate and context at the time, too. You know, the, the South had a much more um, a much more, uh, you know, sort of powerful ally, the United States. And that ally wanted to be much more involved in state building and in nation building and eventually into the war. North Vietnam had China and the Soviet Union, but the fact that those two countries were squabbling allowed North Vietnam to maintain its independence and autonomy against Soviet Union and the People's Republic of China. Had they wanted to be more interventionist like the United States, they couldn't. So all those factors I think are, are extremely important. And then, you know, if you if you actually look at the state and one of the things I was really interested in um, was the Ministry of Public Security. Um, and it really grew in the time period that I was looking at. And now it's this, you know, it's behemoth. Um, but you, you know, what's interesting to see is, you know, they were able to build this sort of um, police state that clamped down on any dissent, that any dissent, you know, in North Vietnam 
you know, if there was any sort of anti-war stirrings as there was in South Vietnam or as there was in the United States, that would have been put down immediately in the North. Um, and it, it all lies in this, you know, this Ministry of Public Security um, and the and the military, um, you know, sort of the, the military, the security services within the military. Um, and what I was able to ex- expose was that there were there were a lot of purges, there were a lot of arrests in North Vietnam. And there was this crackdown of dissent because dissent in North Vietnam equaled treason. So it wasn't about hearts and minds. It was control. control. Yeah, purely control. Um, But at the same time, the Republic of Vietnam, you know, the leaders uh, eventually, especially by the Second Republic, I think because you had this overbearing U.S. ally um, and, you know, you you had um, leaders who were more focused on maintaining power. So, you know, it, there wasn't really effective governance at, at this time in the Republic of Vietnam either. You know, one of the things that is very interesting, even if you look back at the French colonial period, South Vietnamese, Saigon politics was very, very heterogeneous. It was very active. I mean, it was a, it was actually, that is where you can see you know, real democracy, not right. democracy, but you actually have real political debates take place. And it was always in the South, always in Saigon. Hanoi was where the governor general, the French governor general was based. Um, you had less of this sort of very intense political scene. And I think while there are so many benefits to that, uh, by the time that you had, you know, a major, you had a civil war in a Cold War with superpower intervention, that meant that you know the the political scene was much harder to dominate in South Vietnam, uh, in the Republic of Vietnam than its counterpart uh, in Hanoi, uh, you know, in, in North Vietnam. So all of that has to be taken into account in terms of the sort of colonial legacies. Uh, but that vibrancy also led to less, God. you know, sort of uh, unanimity, <laughs> like less, subtle, less unity. Yeah. That nuance of saying, you know, yeah, we had a lot of debates, we had a lot of like freedom, we had a lot of ways of thinking about things actually kind of led to the demise because you have the superpower that comes in and you know everything's scrambled down here and people are still trying to figure it out openly but then you have a unified head start up north that they just come in and they're just so unified and be like then it's over you know um i mean it's not just not that simplistic but and again i apologize for like 20 years of your research and you're being forced into, you know, there's just minutes of like having to unpack all this, but you're doing such a great job of like explaining this to a, you know, a lay person like me. And I could, I could see it clearly uh, the way that you uh, explain these ideas and I can work on it. And I hope that the audience who's listening can also um, think about these things and not keep such a closed mind when it comes to, the history of Vietnam and it's being so black and white that we were raised with. You were just, you, you were the, you know, I, th- I think you were just my PR person for why it's important to continue to study history <laughs> because it's constantly <laughs> changing and evolving given what we're able to see and given the interpretations that come out, right? Like you, you constant, if you have that mindset that you never, you should never stop learning. Right. right. That you should you should always be a perpetual student. You will be a better person. You will be a better human being. You will be a better global citizen as a result. Um, you know, I, I think it's you're you're totally right. The other thing I would say is that, again, another uh, mainstream interpretation was like the Arvin didn't fight, you know, that the military in the South 
why did they pale in comparison to uh, what have been called the big gum, right? The VC uh, or the, the North Vietnamese army. Um, and I think what becomes clear, especially because I do study top-down history, I look at diplomatic, political, I look at leaders. One of the things that I think is universal is that the leadership and all of these war, uh, the belligerents of these war capitals failed their people. Um, I think you can see that in North Vietnam with the Vietnamese communist leadership, with the amount of, of purges, with the amount of arrests, with the amount of really, um, you know, the battle plans that, that you know, something like the Tet Offensive, right, or the, the 1968 military plans, the amount of people who died in this pursuit of North Vietnamese believing that they could actually deliver a decisive blow. Um, you know, they, they, it was just basically suicidal attacks throughout that year. Um, you know, that that saying about one million, two million people, uh, the North Vietnamese leaders say they will win because it didn't matter how many millions died, they never could put themselves included in that number of millions. Likewise, you know, the Republic of Vietnam, with all of the of the of the, you know, sort of struggles that took place, the power struggles between our leaders who kind of, you know, just didn't wage an effective war, allowed the Americans to fight that war and, you know, just sort of wasted resources. At the end of the day, they again sent men, women to their deaths and did not protect the civilian, um, you know, population. The United States, that's very clear. Look at all the studies that, you know, criticize LBJ, Nixon for that war. Um, you know, I think that that is, the, of course, the historical interpretation we all know about that, the, the Vietnam War was a very, it was an unpopular war, it was a wrong war, it shouldn't have happened. The Americans should have never intervened. But again, leaders who believe US credibility on the line, their own credibility on the line, decided to enter that war that they had no point in entering. So I think that that's another universal. The war leaderships on all sides failed their people. And as a result, 58,000 Americans died and one to five million Vietnamese. I grew up thinking that I was incredibly fortunate to be born in the United States. And I still hold that to be true. Uh, but as I get more information about the journey of the diaspora, uh, we left uh, painfully and there's a large legacy of death and, and destruction and, and loss. But at the same time, it's hard to separate as a person who was born in the United States to think that, you know, it's not like we went on a 50-year vacation, but damn, we have it good. We have it so good. How do you mitigate this thought of having it, we have it so good, and we, we need to be very grateful that we have it good, but at the same time, there's like, we are the product of something really ugly coming out of a superpower doing this to us. And I still can't deal with this idea sometimes. So that's why I asked everybody, what does it mean to be Vietnamese? But how do you kind of like think about this stuff? I think you answered it. I mean, that question, I love when you asked that question. I was like, when is he going to ask me what does it mean to be Vietnamese? <laughs> um, I, you know, again, I love how this is all kind of coming together when we first started. You know, for me, it was being influenced by these dinner, dinner table conversations that made me pursue history. Uh, it gets back to that. I've you know, for me in defining what it means to be Vietnamese, actually the starting point is that war. And why that is kind of interesting is of course, when you think about, you know, uh, Vietnam, this, you've heard the saying, Vietnam is more than a war. It's a country with its own history, politics, society, culture worthy of study. 
I'm flipping that on its head. I'm like, but that doesn't mean you ignore the war. And that's basically what happened in the field of modern Vietnamese studies, because the war dominated at least American. You see all the books in my in my bookshelves. Most of the of the you know the histories of Vietnam focused only on the war, and when you get down to it, really only focused on the American experience. U.S. foreign policy was all about what happened to the Americans in the United States as a result of that war. So, as a, you know, in response to that, scholars in my field said, "Okay, we're going to study everything before 1945 and after 1975. We're not even going to touch this." But in doing that, I think it it just made us forget a large part of our history that really defines us and defines even Vietnamese Americans. Um, you're totally right. Like, you know, one of the things I, I'm, I'm very, I feel very fortunate that my my family uh, escaped in 1975 um, and that we resettled in the United States. And I had all of these educational opportunities um, for me. And, and yes, I'm very grateful. One of the things I'm really excited about is that, you know, again, I go to Vietnam, I go often for my work uh, as a part of uh, the Board of Trustees of Fulbright. Now it is Vietnamese saying we are the fortunate ones. We are in Vietnam. Our economy is growing. And again, I think this, 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 this is simplistic because I think it's really, you know, the um, uh, the, the those who live in the cities, who are of a socioeconomic level, who are basically still the elite, uh, but they don't look just to, to Vietnamese abroad. They don't say, oh, look at those Vietnamese Australians. Look at those Vietnamese Americans. When they come back to Vietnam, when they visit us, they're so rich, you know, and, and, and I think that is changing. So while, again, I'm happy where I am, uh, what I loved and I, I got to, I couldn't believe, you know, that we see it in our lifetime that, you know, the Vietnamese in Vietnam are also feeling fortunate. They don't flee. They don't need, they, many return, right? Like even in our, in our families, we have, um, we have relatives who decided, you know what, fine, it's great being in the United States, but I'm going to go retire in Vietnam. So, you know, this this gets also to, you know, what does it mean to be Vietnamese? For me, again, it's about coming from that war, from a very, from a very painful period in, in history to still undergoing challenges to get to where we are now. Uh, the other part of being Vietnamese, and to me, you know, I, I couldn't imagine that when I started out to study this painful period in our in our past, um, to seeing U.S.-Vietnam reconciliation. One of the things I think that we have to work on, or and, and again, this very much defines me as, as, as a Vietnamese, is that I want to see reconciliation between Vietnamese in-country and Vietnamese living abroad. I think that's where the most work can be done. I see state-to-state -state relations, that is great. I see, you know, Vietnam veterans from the United States returning to Vietnam, talking to their enemies, uh, really healing. What I, what I wanna see more improvement on is the relationship between Vietnamese. What is that gonna take? That's why I do this podcast too, it's to, to see that happen. I, I just don't get it sometimes. Um, People are just, you know, they have the blinders on and there's a refusal to even take a peek inside what is going on on the other side. I, I don't think it's coming much from Vietnam to diaspora, but it's more diaspora to Vietnam. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think I think like this, like your podcast, right? I've, I'm a historian, so I can't predict the future. I just study the past. <laughs> so I don't know how long it'll take, but I think it's this kind of work. I think it's this sort of you know, spaces, whether it be, you know, a podcast, if, the, if, if folks listen, if it's taking a class of mine, you know, or reading, reading a book, it will open up, you know, sort of alternate paths or, or things to consider, you know, and I think, I think the more that, that 
that any individual, any human being takes to educate themselves, that means that, you know, I, I think it, the, the time horizon will hope, hopefully shorten. Uh, I don't know when when that'll happen, when we will really see, you know, true reconciliation. I mean, I, I think now you even look at you know, the situation um, in comparable, uh, you know, sort of comparable experiences, whether it be, you know, uh, the Chinese experience, so China and Taiwan, or if you're looking North Korea, South Korea, so Vietnamese are or even Cubans and Cuban Americans, you know, like, it's there, we're not the only one. Vietnamese no. are not exceptional, we're not unique. Um, this is something that, you know, that that burden of history, uh, and then moving forward, I think it just, it takes time. And it has to take individuals who are committed to promoting reconciliation, um, to to open up vistas like listening to a podcast or reading a book about the fraught nature of the Vietnamese Civil War, uh, but then you know sort of what what can happen moving forward. Um, so I think the more those ideas um, are introduced and out there uh, for you know individuals to to learn about, I think I think we can get there. The other thing I would say is you know. While I love going to Vietnam and it, it's something that, you know, again, another common trope you hear is that the Vietnamese have forgotten that war. They're 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 not bitter. And I would actually say no. <laughs> I think that's very unfair and it's unreasonable to expect mm -hmm. that. Um that there there are vestiges of, of just great war wounds. Just go um, to and I would actually museum, say man. go to their well, museum. I, I would actually say it is in the other direction too. It just depends <laughs> right. on who you're talking to. Um that that there is a lot of anger and hatred on our side of a, you know, maybe certain generation or not even, I would say that because it depends on, on when you came and why you came right. to the United States. Um, so that doesn't just inhabit one generation. Right. Um, but at the same time, you know, when you go to Vietnam, I, I think you see this after you go deeper than just the, the you know, the surface. Uh, oh, everyone's so happy here with the government. I, I actually disagree. I think, I think you can't because there's just been not just that war, but decades afterwards of, you know, just, you know, whether it be re-education camps, it's further war. If it is also Vietnamese, um, you know, who, who become very active in trying to overthrow the Vietnamese government that, you know, you can't, you can't expect that, you know, sort of anger and animosity to disappear overnight so we've spent uh a good hour talking about the educate your education but there is a huge side to you that we have not even gotten into yet which is film tv media that space is incredibly uh you've put so much effort and you've made such a big dent in it and there are narratives that come out of hollywood there you know this is my backyard and i have so many questions about working with producers throughout the years how much how amenable have they been uh starting from you know full metal jacket to today how much sort of change in the landscape of allowing us not to be orientals or the indians of the war anymore like uh, how much growth has there been since you started um consulting in the early days this is a very recent foray. I would not say I have much experience. I love it. And I think it, it goes with my um, desire to make history accessible, right, to really introduce what I do, which is very academic and dry. Um, and it, you know, initially was just focused on whether it be my, my graduate students, uh, my field, so other academics reading my books. I mean, it reaches a very small audience, right? Or even the, the courses I teach, it's only bounded by the students here at this university. It is, you know, the 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 
world of film, Hollywood, that reaches a much broader audience. Mm -hmm. It's trying to, you know, make it on your radar screen, Ken. Like, you know, when you do documentaries, when you do film, think of me, uh, because that reach, I mean, it's it's phenomenal. I mean, that's the that's the global megaphone. And I think, again, we're living in a really interesting time that you have, um, you know, strides made by Asian Americans in media, made in film in particular. I mean, just look at the look at the Oscars this year. This is our moment. Just like I said, it's time for Vietnamese Americans to gain that seat at the Ivy League table. It's that time that Asian Americans should gain that seat at the Oscars, like, you know, win every category. And we're already seeing it. So, you know, I think I think th it just took decades of work done by, you know, pioneers uh, in that industry. And it's it's exciting. It's exciting to see. At the same time, you know, we still are dealing with those issues of the sort of stereotypical portrayal of uh, particularly in something that I've done, you know, again, Vietnam War films of Vietnamese being the props in the background uh, to a, to an American experience. Um, it's tough, you know, and and um, I fight it every time I can. And I, but at the end of the day, this is the thing. It kills me because I'm like, you just simplified. You made you, you did a facile interpretation uh, of, a, of a historical event, let's how say. Much of, how much of these uh, uh, sort of people who are in the creative control, are they listening to when you say that, when you put your foot down and say, hey, you're, you're, you're making this a very simple. You're not putting color on the co character. Do they listen? Yeah. In my in my um, experience, they do. Okay. So uh, whereas, you know, so what we can do, I mean, it's I guess it's not to the point where because there are other, uh, you know, sort of uh, issues and, and factors that they have to deal with when they're saying, look, we want to write the script. We want to create this character, have this scene. It is for this target audience. This makes the film better. We're, we're putting it in. And me as a historical son say, but it never happened. Don't do it this way. This is historically inaccurate. Um, yada, yada, yada. I think it tempers that scene or it tempers that mm. character. It may not remove it entirely or doesn't change it drastically, but it tempers it. And I think that's progress. Um, I think the more that Asian Americans and Vietnamese Americans are players in this industry, that's even going to uh, it's going to even get better. Right. Then that's when you can get you can be at a point where you can say remove it entirely or absolutely not. Um, I would say we're not there yet because you still have, again, certain tropes, certain sort of, um, you know, sort of uh, narratives uh, that. In this case, the American experience in the Vietnam War still wants to sort of replicate on the big screen. Uh, but I think now with more Vietnamese Americans involved in every step of the process, um, though that sort of, you know, kind of um, compulsion is tempered. I think everyone is very much waiting to see what happens with the sympathizer and with A24's, you know, production of it. Yeah. And and because that that, you know, again, Big Penguin with his novel and then now it's being adapted into into um, the series and then a feature length film, I guess. And we'll see what happens with that. But um, I think it's an extremely exciting time. And again, back to that point, this is how you reach a broad audience. I think it's extremely exciting. Yeah, you have. Uh... You participated with the Ken Burns documentary, all the way up to the most recent one with the, um, the greatest, uh, the, what is it? Beer the run ever. Yeah. <laughs> the best title, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, tell me how much um, of your sort of, your ideas 
go into sort of uh, when they come to you? What 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 is the process of of you like you read the scenes and you give them notes back on mm -hmm. saying this is not the way it goes or how did how does this all work? Yeah. Um, well, I wasn't involved with the Ken Burns Linovic uh, documentary. I'm a big fan of it. I think, you know, it, I use it in class um, and I knew and I've gotten to know um, one of the senior advisors, Mr. Tommy Vallely, who is also the founder of Fulbright University of Vietnam and the chairman of our board. Um, you know, he had indicated to me that Hanoi's War was very influential in the making of that documentary, but I didn't have a direct uh, role. I did know some of the historical advisors and they met you know, and they, they met a lot and they talked about sort of what would go in um, this documentary. And I think they had a very, you know, it was a, it was a great process. And I think they 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 uh, they have a great product in the end that that it still is extremely influential uh, with the greatest beer run ever. I was more involved in, you know, once I, I could once they had a script, I read it. Um, and again, because it was based on actual events, it was based on um, a memoir uh, written by uh, Chicky Donahue, and it's sort of you know an adaptation, or it's, it's it pulls from his life story. Uh, so they did say, look, some of this is going to be fabricated. Uh, it's not true. It's not following his life, but it's it's drawn loosely. What they wanted me to do was just to make sure that nothing was grossly inaccurate. Mm, so that would go down to okay. So here it is, the uh, you know uh, the caravel. Would the bar have looked like this? How do we recreate that scene? Um, did you know Pleiku? Uh, did the base look like that? So those were the types of questions. And I loved it. I was doing research on some of these battles that Chicky had seen. I went and I, I made sure that, you know, I got the military coordinates wow. right. That there was a firefight. I loved it. It was really applying my skill set as, you know, a sort of historical researcher. I could do that. I'm very excited about being involved um, in a in a in a film uh, with Tony Boy uh, and his producer, Naja Fat Lockwood in what they're doing about uh, Kim Fook and the Napalm Girl and Nick Ut. Um, and that is going in right from the start. And there I, I I hope I've been helping them in pointing out the books they should read, the the historians and the oral, um, you know, sort of uh, the, the the oral interviews that have been done um, in the past and the ones that they are continuing to do for research for this for this script. Um, and that's very exciting to get, you know, there at the start to see how a script could be done by the brilliant, you know, um, Tony Boyd to see what he's going to do with it. And he has that same skill set as a, you know, as a historian, as a PhD student, I mean, more than a PhD student, I mean, he's like a professor of history with with regard to that attention to historical detail and accuracy. Um, because again, these were real events that happened. Um, so how do you stay true to that in people's lives, people's experiences, but yet make a feature length film? So it's it's interesting and very exciting for me to see. I, I got to make a real quick detour here with Tony Bowie is because uh, your involvement working with Tony Bowie, um, to me, he's one of my gods. Uh, he is. Uh, I met him in the late 90s and I really want to say that Tony Bowie, he's not very well known today um, in, in the bigger general pop population uh, in mainstream. But Tony Bowie is the reason so many of my generation got into the film business because we saw him and his brother Tim Bowie do uh, three seasons and it was, um, it 
dominated at the Sundance Film Festival, I think in 99, won the top three audience uh, cinematography and um, a director's award. And it just inspired a whole generation of Victor Vu's, uh, Stefan Gogger's, Hamtrans, all of these producers and directors that come out of that era. I know Tony since those days, and I worked on The Green Dragon with his brother and him, and it was the most beautiful time in my life uh, in, the, in the business. And he is a genius. Tony is an absolute genius. And, you know, I begged him to come on the podcast so many times. We were very close. And, you know, he's very, he's just such a, a very private person. But I just want to put it out there that, you know, he and Naja are, um, you know, we're, I'm very excited to see what comes out of this. And I'm so uh, happy to hear that you're on this project, too. I mean, it's like really brilliant people um, coming out of this uh, union of, of, you know, working with Tony Bowie. I mean, I three seasons changed my life and I was just a consumer. I love going to, you know, art, art house films. And I remember when that came out and it was, uh, you know, again, it really just I was so proud to be Vietnamese American. Um, and and that film changed me. And so in many ways, too, Tony's a god to me as well, but maybe not from someone within the industry. But it definitely was one of these, you know, I, I still remember it from from being a young adult and watching it in the theater. Um, I think, you know, the upcoming film will even be better. Sorry, Tony and Naja, if you're going to watch this. But I, I mean, just seeing what they've done in terms of the historical research process i think you know what he's going to put together and what she is going to help him make i mean i think it's just going to be um it's going to be phenomenal it'll change lives like three seasons did uh i'm proud to announce that they will be with me next year at columbia so he's going to be a director in residence artist in residence and she is going to be an asian action um lecturer so i you know they're going to talk about this experience and this this journey of making this film um that again i think it'll put vietnamese americans on the map uh, it's a total Vietnamese American production. So very excited about it. And the fact that, you know, he's tackling the war again, it's it's been dominated by the Oliver Stones, right? The the Stanley Kubricks, the 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 big American directors uh, that have made big Vietnam War films. Um, and, you know, the fact that this is made by by Tony um it, I, I can't wait. I can't wait for us to kind of meet again so we can celebrate that when the film comes out and maybe try to get him next year when he's here and I'll make him sit right here and do the podcast with you. <laughs> we've spent we've spent countless years hanging out and staying up all night. And, you know, I've, I've spent many, many hours with Tony. Um, but I understand I will never push him because uh, he's very private and I think that his level of um, sort of... Um, understanding of so many things makes him you know uh, a little bit nervous about putting uh words out and then it being permanent on a podcast sort of thing you know it's uh it's and and you know he actually was w one of the first guys who was sitting in my studio and i said have this idea this was a, a few years ago maybe five years ago i said i think i want to do a podcast you know I really i'm thinking about and he said ken you have to do it and he said that to me. He and Bao Nguyen and Anderson Lay, those three guys, really pushed me in the early days to to step off and do it. And you know, I really thank Tony for for being you know in my life. And he's such a, a dear, he's such a sweet person too. I agree wholeheartedly. And I will just say that Tony and Nada, if I got anything wrong in this podcast, I'm so sorry. But again, you can see Ken and I are very excited uh, for this project, and we can't see it, can't wait to see it come to fruition. So 
What are some of the things you think Vietnamese culture has informed the rest of the world? Oh, I, that's a very good question. And again, taking me out of my comfort zone. Uh, again, from my vantage point of as a historian, I think it's I think it's perseverance. Uh, it sounds very simple, but I I can't imagine. And again, it it takes it when I when I do these talks, um, these speeches, just time kind of soaking in our experience uh, from being, as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, um, you know, undergoing the most devastating war of the global Cold War. Um, and, you know, even in terms of if you compare what happened in the Vietnam War to World War I, World War II, it's massive, right? Like Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos was, is the most bombed country um, in the world uh, at that time, more so than any, you know, sort of country during World War II, more, more tonnage of bombs. Uh, the amount, you know, of, of people who died wounded in that war, the countries, uh, you know, broken apart, families broken apart. Um, yet where we are today. You know, and just in that contrast, I think one of the things that you can take away is this sort of perseverance. I think we're finally getting to the point where the war doesn't define us anymore, though. Uh, and so what I want to see is sort of Vietnamese culture, um, you know, in the global arena in the same way that, you know, many people always point to you know, Korean culture. Um, and I hate these sort of facile, you know, sort of uh, comparisons, but when will V-pop overtake K-pop? Um, and from a lot of people I talk to, that's going to happen. I mean, there's there's so much um, excitement about sort of Vietnamese cultural products um, that I think will dominate the world stage. It's just that Vietnamese development has, you know, sort of been stunted as a result of that war, as a result of, you know, Noi Mai taking a while to then be implemented and to really um, to take hold. And then, of course, you know, Vietnam's reaching out to the rest of the world. That's still about 30 years behind mm -hmm. all of these other Asian powerhouses. Right. If you think about uh, what came out of Hong Kong, of Taiwan, of, of Tokyo uh, and more recently Seoul. I mean, I think I think it's going to happen. And I think in the same way, too. Uh, Vietnamese Americans um, will also, and and as they are, you know, we have so many cultural leaders. Uh, but I just feel like, you know, again, it's it's always about this like 10, 20, 30 years behind. Um, but I have 100% confidence and <laughs> faith uh, that you know we are going to continue to contribute. Um, and it's it's interesting to see again because in my lifetime, starting out from a, from a devastating war yeah. to where we are now, just blows me away. Hang, thank you so much. Uh, we packed it in today. I'm very we packed proud. it in. <laughs> we packed it in. We packed it in. I, I looked at the uh, question list, uh, and I feel like I've really gotten, you know, even the the ones that I didn't get to answer, but you've answered it in uh, throughout the the questions, uh, throughout the answers that you gave me. So, I feel very complete and very accomplished uh, with this particular um, interview because you uh really understand the whole scope of this and you know would love to have you come back and um and talk more about the uh next year um and the planning for 2025 and you know in a few more months i think there's going to be so much more to talk about i agree i enjoyed this immensely and I feel like now after this, after this podcast, I'm going to take a drink of one of these just to celebrate. <laughs> We've come a long way. <laughs> Hank, thank you so much. I really appreciate it once again. Thanks, Ken. Thank you for listening to The Vietnamese with Kenneth Nguyen. 
The Vietnamese is produced by Brittany Tran. Special thanks to Jane Wynn, Catherine Wynn, Tina Pham, Sydney Jamie, and Christo Trin. Please find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at The Vietnamese Podcast. You can also find us on YouTube where you can subscribe, like, and comment. Please rate and give us a review wherever you find our podcast. BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then... Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.